chapter 8. As you turn there, we want to remind you that we are currently in our series through the Gospel of John. And one way to introduce this chapter, one idea, is think of children, young children, who are fighting. Or another way would be who are boasting about their dads. No, my dad is bigger than yours. Oh, no, my dad is stronger than yours. Or you may have heard the expression in American uh, culture, who's your daddy? In some way, chapter 8 of the Gospel of John is answering the question, who's your daddy? Would you open Scripture to John chapter 8 as we look at this uh, chapter? And if you're using a Bible provided uh, in, the, in a chair in front of you, there's these red Bibles, you may find this passage on page 928. And the theme of our message this morning is God's Son and the Devil's Children. God's Son and the Devil's Children. Let's read the Word of the Lord. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? When they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis were accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When he kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. 
If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, Will he kill himself? Is that why he says, Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him, I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had just believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Yet you're ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. Hmm. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do what the things that Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and now I am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. 
why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Let's ask him to reveal himself to us. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Oh, Father, the one whom you sent has been so misunderstood 2,000 years ago and time and again ever since. Oh, Holy Father, would you send us now your Holy Spirit and take away anything in us that might cause us to misunderstand. Oh, Lord, we trust on you to reveal yourself to us once again. And we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction that this passage needs to bring so that we may indeed glorify in the Son as you have glorified your Son also. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, this chapter begins with an attempt to stone a woman caught in adultery. And this chapter ends 
with the same attempt, but this time to stone Jesus. While theologians and Bible translators have reasons to believe, good reasons to believe, this story may not have been part of the original manuscripts of this Gospel of John. There are reasons, or there are no reasons, to doubt that such a story did take place, or might have taken place at some point in Jesus' life. What it teaches and it illustrates is consistent with what Jesus did elsewhere, so we can learn lessons from it. But what this means, if, if the first story here in chapter 8 may not have been part of the original manuscripts, what this means is that chapter 8 verse 12 and following should be seen as a continuation of Jesus' teaching during the Feast of the Tabernacle in chapter 7. Chapter 8 should be seen very closely linked to ch with chapter 7. Now, the truth that holds the entire chapter 8 together is verse 12. Let me read it again. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This verse is so weighty. This verse is so powerful that the rest of chapter 8 will unpack the truth contained in this one verse. Lloyd-Jones, the well-known Welsh preacher who is considered by some the, the Spurgeon of the 20th century, preached five sermons based on this verse alone. Five sermons, about 58 minutes each. I'll only do one. Let's look at what Jesus means when he says, I am the light of the world, and how chapter 8 unpacks this truth. The first point I want to point to is understanding the light of the world. Do you remember, friends, do you remember how this gospel started? How this gospel began? Turn with me just a few pages to chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is how this gospel began. And now eight chapters later, Jesus stands and he says, I am the light of the world. Now, you remember John's gospel is based so much on the Old Testament. If we want to understand the gospel of John, we must understand the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was described as the light. As our brother Jeff read earlier in the service, Psalm 71 begins with the words, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Light and salvation was linked also in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6, where God says about His servant, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Light and salvation go hand in hand in the Old Testament. Now finally at the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus 
stands up and says explicitly about himself, I am the light of the world. Now, if you remember, this dialogue is still part of the Feast of the Tabernacle. During this feast, I mentioned two weeks ago, during this feast, a significant part of it was a water rite. A water rite celebrated uh, because the Jews thanked God for the water God provided in the desert as they went from Egypt to the, to the, to the promised land. So that the Feast of the Tabernacles was a feast of, of living for a week in tents in the backyard or on the rooftops to remember again the journey of, from slavery to salvation. Water was an important part of it. But there was another thing that, was, that played a key role in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the role of light. They would light candles and fires and it was when you, when you went to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, you saw tents, you saw water, and you saw light. Why? Because, you see, the, the, the story of redemption, the Exodus, was not simply the story of just getting out of Egypt. It was about getting into Canaan, getting into the Promised Land. For 40 years, the Jews lived in tents in that journey. And during that journey, God provided them not only with water and food, but God provided them with direction by way of a pillar of cloud during the day and by way of a pillar of fire during the night. Since salvation was not simply getting out of Egypt, but arriving into Canaan, a critical element they needed to achieve their destination, that salvation, was, God, was God's pillar of light. That's why in the Old Testament, the idea of light and salvation are often presented hand in hand, as Psalm 27 said, and as Isaiah 49, 6 said. God is my light and my salvation. We experience God's salvation not just by seeing His light, but by following it. Now, picture yourself if you were one of the Jews who just got out of Egypt. You're across the Red Sea in the desert. The appropriate thing to do with the light of the glorious pillar of fire is not just to look at it and see how beautiful it is. If you were a Jew across the Red Sea and you saw the pillar of fire and you saw that fire moving, the appropriate thing for you to do is pick up your tent, pick up your belongings, and start moving along with the light because the fire of light was moving and it's taking you to the promised land. This is the background for John chapter 8. That's why the very next phrase Jesus says after identifying himself as the light of the world is to say the following. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, belief in Jesus is not simply an intellectual at an intellectual level. Belief in Jesus is not just a decision you've made long ago, but it's an ongoing engagement with Him. 
Remember a few weeks ago in chapter 6, we saw Jesus described himself as the bread of life. And in that chapter, faith in Jesus meant that we have to eat him. If Jesus is a bread of life, we're called to eat that bread, to eat Jesus. Now in chapter 8, he describes himself by the second I am statement. I am the, the light of the world, and faith in him means following him. And the outcome is that we will never walk in darkness. Friend, how do you define faith in Jesus? you define faith in Jesus this morning? What does it mean for you to say that you or someone you know believes in Jesus? Does your faith in Jesus take the form of light? That light that dispels the darkness of your life? Does your faith in Jesus help you see the light of the true life that he came to bring? Do you see that light and that life in you? Is this light of life in you? Or is your view of faith just a kind of one-time decision you've made for Christ? The kind of cheap and superficial enthusiasm that deflated itself to the point that you're still walking in darkness and you cannot see what different light God truly brought in your life because there has been nothing different in you. Think with me for a moment. How do you define faith in Jesus? Friends, real faith in Christ is so real and its impact is so tangible, it is as clear as a contrast between light and darkness. And there might be someone here this morning, you're listening to this, these words and you say, I don't know what you're talking about because I've not seen it so clear in my life. Friend, you may be a Christian, you may be a visitor, you may think you're a Christian, but if, if this contrast is not clear to you in your own life, I'd encourage you to listen again to the words of Jesus. How he defines himself and how he defines what he brings to us. He is the light of the world. Whoever follows him shall never, shall never walk in darkness, but have the life, the light of life. So how does this light shine in darkness? How do you know? Well, the rest of this chapter answers the question. Let's look at it. Let's look at this chapter. And by the way, this verse and, and the rest of the chapter not only are a powerful conclusion to the Feast of the Tabernacles, but they're also a significant transition and prepare the way for chapter 9, in which Jesus not only tells and claims that he's the light of the world, but in chapter 9, he proves this by his ability to make a blind man see again, while others who pretend to see remain blind to the light. So how does the light shine in darkness? Let's look at chapter 8. 
there are two ways. There are two ways how, how Jesus shows us how the light shines in darkness. The first one is accepting the testimony of Jesus. Accepting the testimony of Jesus. I occasionally run into people who claim to be spiritual and who even acknowledge the existence of God and of Jesus. But when I ask them about their views of Christ, it's clear that they have no knowledge of what Christ claimed to be. They might have heard about this God and about this Christ from others. They might have read what others, other people said about him. But it's clear that they've never read what Jesus himself said about himself. So an easy test is to see if someone is truly accepting the testimony of Jesus is to see, an easy test to see if someone is accepting the testimony of Jesus is to ask him, how do they know about him? Acknowledge, it seems like you know a few things about Jesus. Great. How do you know about him? Where do you have this knowledge from? And if they've never read Jesus' words about himself, ask them if they would be interested to read with you. Perhaps you would offer yourself some time to say, would you mind if we read through the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Mark together if, if you would really want to know who Jesus, Jesus is? Now, if they say no, that's darkness. They claim to know about Jesus. They claim to have their own impressions about Jesus, but they're not interested to read his own words about himself. That's darkness. People would rather have their own views of God, of Christ, and they would rather trust their impressions of God and trust and Christ rather than actually inspect, examine, and go to the original sources, to the eyewitnesses' accounts. Understanding the light is first and foremost manifested by accepting the testimony of Jesus, of who He claimed to be, of where He came from, where he has gone from this earth, and not simply what we think of him. The starting point in coming to the light is simply to accept what Christ claimed to be and do. His origins, his mission, and his destiny. His claim are not just, is not just a good story, it's a true story. Now, why do people need to accept this testimony? Why is this important? Why do we want to make sure that people actually go back to the original sources? and understand who Jesus is based on who he claimed to be. It's because of verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus says, If you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Now, friends, a story alone, our own story of God, no matter how good it is, does not have the power to forgive us. Only the shedding of blood can pay for our rebellion and provide us with forgiveness. What a terrible state of dying. To die in your sins. To die without having your sins forgiven. This is the greatest need of mankind. Mankind's greatest need is not to be happy. It's not to be accomplished in life. It's not to live a full life. No, man's greatest need is to have his guilt before God removed. 
absolved, forgiven, taken away, put aside. And as the book of Leviticus tells us, only the shedding of blood can absolve our sins. Failing to deal with our sins prior to dying leads us to dying in our sins. And the path for dealing with our sins is quite simple. To accept the testimony of Jesus in who He claimed to be and what He claimed to do, not our impressions of Him. You may be here this morning wondering about Jesus, just as the Jews did, asking in verse 25, Who are you? And Jesus says, just what I've been telling you, just what I've been claiming all along. Again, that bird. Don't worry about it. Just a little earlier, Jesus told them that He is the light of the world. But can they believe it? Can they believe the testimony of Jesus that He is the light of the world? Friends, don't take His self-revelation lightly. Don't treat it as if it has no claims on you or no relevance for your life. If nor ignoring or rejecting the very testimony that brought us salvation will turn out to be a testimony of judgment against us, just as Jesus' testimony about Himself end up being a judgment against these Jews. The last answer Jesus gives Him to the question, Who are you? What, what does Jesus say about Himself? What is His testimony about Himself is in verse 27 through 29. In these verses, Jesus is pointing to the moment when the Jews will have lifted up the Son of Man. Who are you? Who is Jesus? What is the testimony of Jesus about, about, of Jesus about Himself? Verses 27 and 29. The greatest moment of Christ's self-revelation. The greatest moment of revealing His Father to us was going to be the cross. The greatest moment of Christ's self-revelation about Himself was going to be the moment of the cross. That's why for us Christians, the cross and then the resurrection are so critical to our, our understanding of who Jesus is. It was His blood that was shed for us that covers our rebellion against God and makes us right with God. That's the great news of the gospel. Oh, dear friend, we cannot experience our liberation from darkness we cannot, we cannot understand our liberation from darkness until and unless we come to understand and believe what happened on the cross. The cross was the ultimate identity marker for who Jesus was and what He came to do. It's amazing that Jesus had said the same thing to Nicodemus. Do you remember in chapter 3 when Jesus tells Nicodemus that His testimony is not being accepted? Jesus says, I we tell you of what we hear, but you don't believe our testimony. And then Jesus goes on and says, I tell the truth, the Son of Man must be lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the in the desert. The greatest, the greatest marker of Jesus' testimony of who He is is the moment of being lifted up. The testimony of Jesus about Himself found its climax in His cross. Friends, if we don't understand the cross and why Jesus came to die on it, we don't understand Jesus and His testimony about Himself. 
Praise God for that cry. That was his amen to what was just proclaimed. If we don't understand the cross, we don't understand the light Christ came to shine in darkness. Nor will we understand the darkness Christ came to destroy if we don't understand the cross. That's why I highly recommend to your book by John Piper, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I've said it before in the last few weeks. I encourage you to, to get it. We have it here on a slide wall. Learn more about Christ through his cross. So how is darkness exposed? By accepting the testimony of Jesus about himself as he gave it to us, not as we would like to have it be. But the second way that darkness is exposed and, and dispelled is accepting his call to follow him. Accepting his call to follow him. The darkness of the world is not simply being morally off track, but also being religiously off track. What do I mean by this? It's not simply that we have the wrong view about morality, but also that we actually have the wrong view of true discipleship. Look at verse 30 with me. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Now, friends, this is great news. Even as he spoke, many have put their faith in him. No altar call. Even as he spoke, many have put his faith in him. But listen to what comes next. Verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Being a follower of Jesus is not simply about making a decision for Christ at some point in life. It is about following Him. Jesus is differentiating here true faith, true discipleship from spurious faith, from superficial discipleship. Jesus is not interested in simply having disciples. He wants to have real, genuine disciples. Jesus defines now what exactly separates Superficial, false faith from true faith. He says, you are really my disciples. If you hold to my teaching. The verb to hold means to remain in his teaching, to abide in it. And by the way, in the Gospel of John, this theme of holding on, of abiding, is so crucial that Jesus will come back to it later in chapter 15 to give it prime focus. But here, for now, Jesus is, is really saying that perseverance is the mark of true faith. Perseverance is what characterizes true disciples, real disciples. Friends, there are people in your life that you know have made a decision for Christ when they were young. But they're not currently walking with the Lord. You know it. And they know it too. What does this truth of John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, what does this truth, that perseverance is the ultimate mark of true faith, what does this truth compel us to do 
about such people. Don't sit back hoping that they would just start acting like children of God. Go and talk to them and tell them the gospel as if they had to hear it for the first time. Tell them the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Tell them the words of Jesus in John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. And do this not simply to guilt them into the kingdom, but to wake them up from the unbiblical impression that we can call ourselves disciples of Christ without actually following Him. Friends, don't just sit back assuming that their eternal destiny is safe. Perseverance of the faith is the ultimate mark of true disciples. Talk to them about the gospel and about the call of Christ as if they heard it for the first time. Don't assume that they know it. Don't assume that they have accepted it. Talk to them as if it's the first time. Likewise, when we lead someone to Christ, and if we pray with them the sinner's prayer, listen to me, we should not, be careful here, it's a caution. We should not try to talk them right away into being assured of their salvation based purely on a prayer that they have repeated after us. But rather give them a biblical caution that sounds something like this. Now, Joe, just because you pray the prayer does not mean that your heart has been changed. Only God's Spirit gives us a new birth. Time will tell if this conversion was true. Continue to seek after God as you've done today. But be assured of this. Genuine conversion creates long-lasting fruit, and one of those fruits is perseverance. Give new converts that biblical caution. Give new converts that biblical assurance. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's presenting the great truth of the gospel, but in such a way that spurious professions of faith are soon unmasked. And he's giving a biblical caution to those who made an initial profession of faith. Jesus wants to give no assurance to followers who have not truly been born again. When the true light of the gospel has penetrated our lives, it creates in us a new life. It creates a new aspiration. It creates new desires. And this new life will endure. It is impossible not to endure if it's true. Yes, there's going to be sin. Yes, there's going to be times of sliding off. But these will always be accompanied by ongoing repentance. That's the life of perseverance. It's not the presence or absence of sin that will be evidence of true conversion, but the ongoing desire to fight it off, to live a life of ongoing repentance before the Lord. This is persevering faith. In verse 32, we see a glorious promise to those who are true disciples of Christ. This is why we want to make sure people have experienced genuine conversions because of the great promise of verse 32. Then... Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
Friends, these words are not the words of the building at UT. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is not the truth that Jesus is talking about. The truth that will set us free is the truth of what Jesus had just said. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not, shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is the truth. The truth of who Jesus is. And then the truth that if you hold to my teachings, you're truly my disciples, then you'll know the truth. And the truth shall set you free. Now, these Jews were not put off by Jesus' call to hold on to his teachings. That's not what put them off. These Jews were put off by the promise to be set free because Jesus assumed that they were enslaved. And this was a big put off. These Jews simply could not accept this assumption that they were enslaved and needed to be free. Do you know people who could not accept this assumption today? It is not an easy exception, assumption to accept. And yet, let's look at this dialogue. Just for the record, these Jews have been enslaved in the past more than once. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and now Rome. Yet here, they weren't thinking about physical enslavement. They were not talking about being physically enslaved. They truly believed that spiritually speaking, religiously speaking, they were slaves of no one. They found confidence in their religious heritage as descendants of Abraham. Yet Jesus redefines for these Jews true enslavement. Look at how Jesus redefines enslavement. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Friend, this is the most devastating enslavement in the world. It's the enslavement with the largest roll of names enlisted in it. All mankind except one were born into it. And this is what sin does to us. It enslaves us. And no religious ties have the power to liberate us. No denominational ties have the power to liberate us. No human will has the power to liberate itself. Sometimes people brag about free will. Man does not have free will. Sinful man only has an enslaved will. We cannot, we cannot buy ourselves out of it. Only Christ, only Christ can free us from our enslavement. Verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Friend, have you experienced the freedom that Christ offers us? The freedom to say no to sin and no longer follow it? As Jesus commanded the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more? Friends, so saying no to sin is a command God gives us. But of our own will, we could never follow this command. Can I get an amen, amen for that? God gives us a command, no more sin in your life. Go and sin no more. But of our own will, we cannot follow 
this command. That's why saying no to sin is actually God's definition of freedom. That's why actually saying no to sin, it's the way Jesus defines the freedom He gives us. You can't buy this freedom. You can't fight to obtain this freedom. It has to be given to us by faith, not because we deserve it, but only because of God's sheer mercy. Friend, have you experienced this freedom in your life? For the Jews, the words of Jesus were too radical, so they agreed Jesus needed to be killed. And at this point, their true faces are unmasked, and Jesus exposes who their true Father is. Saying in verse 43, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Remember what the devil did in the garden? This is the, superficial, the problem with superficial faith. It doesn't change our true spiritual father. Jesus said to these Jews, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. What a hard thing for Jesus to have to tell these Jews. Throughout this chapter, this chapter is about who's your daddy. Jesus has to tell these Jews who their true father is. And it's not an easy job. Jesus has to confront these Jews who are absolutely sure of themselves beyond shadow of a doubt that God is their father. And God sent Jesus to tell these Jews that he's not. What a difficult job to do to confront these Jews with their false assurance and to reveal to them their true father, the devil. How difficult Jesus' preaching had to be in this chapter. What's amazing, dear friends, in this, in this difficult confrontation between Jesus and the Jews is that Jesus provides us with some clear evidences of what it means to have God as our Father. Two things. Verse 42. If God were your Father, you would love me. This is how we know that God is our Father, that we love Jesus. And the second way, verse 47, he who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason why you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is another mark of genuine children of God. They actually hear what God's Word says as revealed by Christ in the Scriptures. Dear friends, dear listeners, are these present in your life? Because if they are, listen to the glorious promise Jesus gives in verse 51. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my Word, he will never see death. Friends, this is what Jesus came to bring he came to bring life. But in order to bring life, Jesus had to dispel the darkness in which we were born. If He's a revealer of life and holding on to His truth is evidence, not the cause, but evidence that we're genuine followers of the light, His light has dispelled the darkness in which we live. And we understand the testimony of Jesus and we understand His call to follow Him. Friends, our world has not changed very much in the last 2,000 years. It's still dark. 
And that darkness is not just in, outside of us, out there in the world. That darkness is inside of us. It's the greatest darkness because we're dark and we're blind to our own blindness. But darkness is not just in the world. It's inside of us. It's in our nature. The Bible tells us that we are born in sin. We are born with darkness inside us. I love what Lloyd-Jones said. This is not being unkind to mankind. It's truthful. There is something in us stronger than our minds and our emotions and our will. It's our lusts, our sinful desires and ambitions to worship creation instead of the Creator. There is a power in us that is greater than ourselves. It's a dark power. It's the power of darkness. And we cannot get rid of it on our own. The darkness of the world and the darkness of our nature has not changed. Is there any hope? The only hope is Jesus is the light of the world. And He, as the light, has not changed either. He continues to shine. He continues to be the one who dispels the darkness. It's only when Christ comes in in our lives and His light shines in us that we see the darkness inside of us and that darkness can be dispelled and destroyed. Only He has the power to destroy the darkness of our souls, the darkness of our minds, the darkness of our hearts. That's why trying to find our confidence in religion or in morality or in our self-worth or in our own experience or in our own decision is utterly without power. Receiving Christ and following Him makes a change in us and gives us a great promise. We will never walk in darkness but have the light of life. Have you experienced this promise? Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you, we praise you that you have not let us die in our sins. You have not let us die in our darkness, but you have shunned the light of Christ to our minds, to our hearts, to reveal to us how deep the darkness inside of us is. And you have led us to, to call out to Christ, the only one who can destroy this darkness. Oh, Jesus, we cry out to you. There are souls here this morning who are still in darkness. They still do not see the clear evidence that light has brought in their lives. And they're still overtaken by the power of sin by the power of darkness in their lives. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that as they call out to you, you will shine your light in their hearts and give them that light. Give it to them as a free gift so that light may bring to them a new life and that life may be eternal. Oh, Lord, we pray that those of us who have experienced that light, we may continue to look to you. We may continue to look to Jesus and put all our confidence in Him so that we may rejoice, so that we may continue to love Jesus, that we may continue to hear Your words and one day have the confidence, have the assurance that we will see Jesus face to face. Until that day, O Lord, we look, we look inside of us to the light You have put in us. 
and praise your glorious name. Amen. Let's continue to worship. <clears throat> Would you please stand and turn to page nine with the word of the Lord that has stirred our souls. Let us sing of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. Thank you. 